from the book of Luke, chapter 1. So if you want to find your way there in your Bibles, that's where we'll be this morning, as you heard read uh, earlier. But to start with, let me make a rather stunning statement to you. Uh, We are bad at waiting, right? We are really bad at waiting. There's a guy named uh, Robert Samuel who kind of is like the epitome of this. Uh, He's a 46-year-old former mobile phone salesman. He now gets paid rather well to sit in line for others. That's his job. If a client wants something but can't stomach a long line, they pay him thousands of dollars to do it for them. Samuel sits, stands, or sometimes sleeps in lines waiting for theater tickets, iPhone releases, limited edition hoodies, and more before either relinquishing his place in line to his customer or buying the tickets for them. This has been his work for over nine years. Nine years he's been doing this as his full-time gig, and before the pandemic, he was earning over $86,000 a year standing in line. Um, Robert Samuel's employment strategy works for one reason. We're bad at waiting, right? I ran across a statistic that said we will only wait. The statistic was put forward as we will only wait for 13 seconds before honking when the light turns green. Now, let's be honest. How many of you would wait 13 seconds? Was there anybody in the room that would wait 13 seconds before honking? I didn't think so. We are really bad, we are really bad at waiting. Uh, but waiting is inescapable. Um, there are things, sometimes really important things, that simply must be endured. Sometimes there are no shortcuts, no ways around waiting. We have a space in our, in our society that bears the name of this, that reminds us of this. It's called the waiting room at our hospitals, right? Um, We wait there with no other alternative. We can hire no one to take our place there. We wouldn't want to. There, love binds us to wait, right? One writer summed up the waiting room experience this way, the critical care waiting room is a place of hoping. It is a place of anticipating, a place of expecting. It is a place, he says, of advent. Advent, as Daniel mentioned, is a season of waiting, of hope stretched thin but holding. Um, It's a season of longing for things to be made right. My favorite advent writer is... Uh, A lady named Fleming Rutledge, and she puts it this way. She says, Advent was designed to be the season that looked forward, not to the birth of the baby Jesus in Bethlehem, but to the second coming of Christ. Advent locates the church properly in between the times, the time of waiting through the night for the bridegroom to come. And so we as a church family live in a season of waiting, a waiting we We don't measure even in centuries, but in millennia, awaiting for the return of Jesus to set all wrongs right, awaiting for him. Come, Lord Jesus, is a perfect prayer for this Advent season. And so today, as we continue our study of the book of Luke, one of the things that's before us 
is today we're going to learn how to wait as a people. And so if you haven't found your way there already, we're in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Let me pray again for us as we open the word. Um, O Spirit of God, be merciful to us today and wriggle past our defenses so that we would receive your word uh, with open arms and willing hearts. Grant us that mercy and grace. We need it so. Uh, help us now. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, as, as we open the Gospel of Luke and begin a study that will take us through next year, um, we find that God's people have been in a kind of waiting room for 400 years where they've had no recorded communication from God, the God that they are waiting upon for their deliverance. And then, as Carson taught us so wonderfully last week, um, God speaks once again in Luke chapter 1 through these angelic messengers who are showing up all over the place. Last week, uh, Carson taught us from the story of Zechariah. Um, Zechariah had an angelic visit um, that announced that he and his aging wife, Elizabeth, would bear a son named John. He would grow to be John the Baptist, would be his his legacy. And this was beyond belief for Zechariah because both he and Elizabeth were well beyond the years of having kids. Think about your grandparents getting pregnant, right? That's kind of what's going on here. So the angel gave Zechariah a sign, a kind of time out from the Lord. He would not be able to speak for nine months until their miracle child was born and named. Um, and in today's passage, we're in the midst of that divinely, of uh, that a season of divinely imposed silence upon Zechariah. And as we look at the next three scenes in Luke's story, all three of them involve this young girl named Mary. So starting in verse 24, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach. Among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So that reference to the sixth month is the sixth month of Elizabeth's miraculous, aged Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy. Um, that's where our story picks up. The main character, again, in the drama is, is this young girl named Mary. She's a virgin. We'll talk more about that briefly in a minute. She lives in a town called Nazareth. It's, it's a little town. Some estimate less than 500 people. It's in the middle of nowhere. Um, think of it this way. Nazareth was to Jerusalem what Pocomoke is to Raleigh. Um, Pocomoke. Some of you are thinking, where's that? Um, that's the point, I think. How many of you know where Pocomoke is? A few of you, right? Um, it's west of Franklinton, off of Highway 96. Uh, it has literally a two-sentence Wikipedia entry, right? Two sentences. That's all that Pocomoke gets. Um, and that's why Luke has to explain that Nazareth is a town in Galilee, they likely, people likely didn't even know where it was. Um, and as we're about to see, 
to this young girl, perhaps as young as her early teens, engaged to a humble carpenter in a small town in the middle of nowhere, the great and powerful angel Gabriel is about to appear to her to announce the birth of the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the great king. It's the most unlikely of places and the unlikeliest of recipients uh, the carpenter's fiance, a peasant girl from the middle of nowhere, and it's the unlikeliest of advents. As Daniel mentioned, that's a word that just means coming. The Savior of the world is coming humble. And his humble coming is to yield that same virtue in those of us who say we follow him, even as we wait for his second coming. In a word, we wait humble, okay? So as Christ's first advent draws near, this angel Gabriel makes a visit to the equivalent of a middle schooler in Franklinton. Think about that. A middle schooler in Franklinton is what we're seeing happen here. This is an unthinkable visit, and Mary is greatly troubled by it, and understandably so. Verse 28, the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So as he did with Zechariah in the previous passage, the angel now calms Mary's fears and explains his message to her. She is going to conceive, and he adds the little phrase, in your womb. The angel is driving the physical reality of this miracle that's about to happen to her home. This is not some kind of spiritual adoption. Gabriel's, he's saying here, it's a very real pregnancy and birth. Once again, Gabriel's mission is con to convey a predictive prophecy about a child not even yet conceived, predicting both the name and the gender. Um, this is not detection. This is prediction. This is no mere gender reveal going on here. It's prophecy. A child not yet conceived will be born male, and his name shall be Jesus, which means we learn from Matthew's account, God saves it has to do with God saving his people from their sins. And beyond that, the angel predicts greatness. And I'm, I'm underselling it here. Greatness for this child, just as he did concerning John's birth in the previous story. Yet this child's greatness will eclipse that of Zechariah and Elizabeth's son. This boy yet to be born yet to be conceived, will be king over Israel, not just for a term or two or even for a lifetime, but forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. And he will be the son of the Most High, that is, the very son of God. 
But it's interesting, it's not the grandeur of the predictions that Mary is stumbling over at this point in time. Mary said to the angel in verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? Mary's tripping over the fact not that her son will be the great and eternal king and the very son of God, but that she's having a son at all. After all, she's in middle school and a virgin, right? Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived the son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And, and God here gives three things by my count through his messenger Gabriel to help Mary believe this unbelievable message that's been brought to her. First, she gets an explanation. It's a mysterious explanation to be sure but it's an explanation nonetheless. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's, it's like an enigma wrapped in a mystery. All we know is that the Holy Spirit somehow is creating life here within Mary's womb. It's a miracle that's taking place. Christopher Ash writes in his helpful Advent devotional, all down Old Testament history, there were hints that one day God himself would dwell on earth. The tabernacle and later the temple were the clearest of those foreshadowings. At rare and special times, the glory cloud enveloped, covered, settled, and overshadowed the tabernacle and the temple. And God himself dwelt on earth. But now in the womb of Mary, as the Holy Spirit overshadows her, God himself comes in the reality of human flesh and blood to dwell on earth. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, is the way Isaiah predicted it. And, and it's by means of this miraculous virgin conception that the son shall be called holy, the very son of God himself. Now, many have found this beyond belief, um, but not Mary. This impossible explanation seems enough for Mary. Um, and I suppose if we stop and think about it, it's really not a problem for the one who is the creator and sustainer of all life, who spoke life into existence, all life into existence, to do this thing. Right? Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. This is who God is. He's the author of all life. What's truly extraordinary here is his means. Only once in all of history has this thing happened. And Mary believes that it is true and will happen to her. So Mary first is given an explanation. Then she's given a sign to help her uh, believe this message. Verse 36, and behold, your relative Mary Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived the son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So her relative Elizabeth, her aged relative, um, the one known as barren, beyond the years of childbearing. Um, there's one guesstimate that I ran across 
of her age. We don't know Elizabeth's age. One guesstimate was that's lasted throughout church history, 88. 88. That's kind of old to be in the way of a mother, right? She's now with child. She's six months along, Elizabeth is. At six months, you could verify it without the age of modern technology. You could tell just by looking. There's no, no level three ultrasound needed at this point, right? In one sense, Elizabeth is pregnant for Mary, just as her baby John will be born for Jesus. Elizabeth's impossible pregnancy reassures Mary that the God in whom she trusts is doing wonderful things in the world already. And Mary gets one more thing to help her believe. She gets first an explanation, then she gets the sign of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And lastly, she gets a declaration about the power of God to do this thing. Verse 37, the angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. God can do even this. And Scripture echoes this over and over and over. In Genesis 18, we read, Is anything too hard for the Lord? The implication is no. In Job, we read, um, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jesus himself said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The idea here is that God's plan, his predictions, his promises cannot be thwarted. The, the New International Version catches the idea here. It says in verse 37, for no word from God will ever fail. God's omnipotence, his great unstoppable power is here targeted on his promises. He can be trusted to keep his promises, God can. Promises like this one in Romans 8. I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or like this one in Hebrews 13, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or this one in the book of Acts, says that Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Or this one in the book of Revelation, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. God keeps his promises. His words will come to pass. This is our hope and trust as God's people, right? His promises are sure. And so Mary takes God at his word, unbelievable as it may be. And at this point, it's, uh, just kind of an aside, uh, sometimes people wonder why does Mary get the kind of the soft treatment here and Zechariah got such a hard treatment for asking questions about how this is going to happen. And I... I suppose there's a couple reasons why that might be happening. One, the setting is a little bit different, right? Um, Mary is a middle school girl um, in the middle of nowhere. And Zechariah was an 80-year-old priest in the temple in Jerusalem. 
to whom much is given, much is required, maybe, going on here. Um, but also their questions might be slightly different here. Maybe that Zechariah seems to be asking about, is this possible? Where Mary is asking about logistics, how this is going to happen. He's asking whether it's going to happen. She's asking more of a, how is this going to happen? Um, Something seems different in their motive because Mary is not indicted for unbelief by Gabriel as Zechariah was. But what I want you to see, though, is that both responses are God's kindness to help them believe. It's just what each one needed. Zechariah needed nine months of silence to believe, and Mary needed Elizabeth to be pregnant. And this is what God does. He brings to his people what we need to believe. He does, it, he does it for Zechariah, a rebuke for his unbelief, that sign of silence, nine months of silence. He does it for Mary, the explanation, the sign, the declaration of his power to keep his word. And he does it for us as well. He might be doing it for you this morning. He gives us what we need to believe. Sometimes it comes in a sermon. Sometimes it might come in a song lyric. It might come in a conversation in the lobby. It might come in a verse that's read during the scripture reading. But every time you come in here, God is giving you what you need to believe. God is at work helping you to believe maybe this morning for the very first time. Maybe for one more time. And I wonder this morning, will you welcome what God is saying to you? Will you embrace it and believe it? But now we turn to address this question head on of how, how we are to wait during this Advent in which we live, this Advent season in which we live. Um, Mary's response is for our good example in that regard. Look, look at verse 38. To all of this, Mary says, Young Mary says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, now that is how you respond to the commands and the promises of God. Let it be to me as you have said, I am the servant of the Lord. Um, commentator and scholar James Edwards says that the word servant here is too discreet for the Greek word which denotes a female slave. When Mary responds to Gabriel, let it be to me as you have said, she surrenders herself absolutely to God's will. In the ancient world, slavery, for which the generic word is used here, signified total belonging and submission. Total belonging and submission. Slave, more than servant, accurately represents Mary's will. For despite her perplexity, she chooses to comply with grace. Let God's will be done. Total belonging and submission. Let it be to me according to, you, to your word. I will do, Mary says, whatever you ask of me, period. And this is always the best response to God's ask of us. Full submission, whatever the shape of this task. How are you responding to God's word that's given to you? Would you, would you be happy or comfortable with being described as full obedience to God? Does that describe you? We could say it different ways. You could say, have you put your yes on the table? 
Are you, are you palms up before God? Can you say with Mary, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to me, according to your word. And while we wait, we do what God asks of us. We obey, like Mary. Christopher Ash again says, when Mary prays, may your word to me be fulfilled. She is offering herself to God, her womb, her body, her whole vulnerable person in loving submission and trusting obedience. This is true faith. In his letter to the Romans, Paul calls it the obedience that comes from faith. To believe is to obey, and to obey from a heart of trust is to believe. Spend a moment, he says, examining your heart. Is there a particular way in which real faith in your heart will show itself in some new obedience to God? So how do we wait for the future coming of Christ, the second advent? With trusting humility that plays out in obedience. That's how we wait, like Mary. Are you waiting well for the return of Christ these days? Look at verse 39. In, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Mary is eager to search out the sign and let her faith be strengthened by it. It says, she went with haste. Verse 41, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Mary. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So at six months, Elizabeth's baby is active. There's nothing unusual about that, except that she understands by the fullness of the Spirit of God that this baby, it leapt for joy. He leapt for joy when he hears the voice of someone he's never met. When Mary speaks. And by the way, Elizabeth states this. This acts like another sign, this time both to Elizabeth and Mary. And this one comes to them through an unborn child. God, it would seem, is active in the life of an unborn child. And this is another one of those stories in Scripture that Scripture's kind of littered with that makes us want to cherish the little ones in the womb and protect them as we can. God, the author of life, is mysteriously at work in the womb, it seems. And the Spirit, who is really active during these Advent stories, prompts Elizabeth to pronounce God's blessing on her young relative and on Mary's unborn child as well. And that's really the point. This, this part of the story is not about Elizabeth or her miraculous son she is carrying. She is pointing to one greater. She is blessing one more blessed. This part of the story, though the spotlight is on Mary, isn't really about Mary either. Even, Mary, even Elizabeth's unborn son 
seems to be pointing beyond Mary to Mary's son, something that would become the focus of John the Baptist, that son of Elizabeth, his whole life, his whole ministry. He would be known as one who would prepare the way for the Lord. And Elizabeth feels incredibly blessed. Look at verse 43. Why is this granted to me, she says, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She feels incredibly blessed to just meet Mary, the teenager who is the mother of aged Elizabeth's Lord. She's honored, humbled to play just a small part in the story of the birth of her Lord, to even be there. Mary's humility is seen in her obedience. Elizabeth's is in a sense of being a bit overwhelmed that she just gets to be a part. She doesn't say, hey, why isn't my baby the Lord instead of just some bug-eating prophet, huh? No, she says, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? You know, the right response to the good news about Jesus, to Jesus himself, is humility expressed in obedient trust and, and wonder that we get to play a part in this at all. All the supporting players in this drama, Elizabeth, Zechariah, baby John the Baptist, Mary, they all point to the one given to Mary. It's his story. They're just signposts along the way. They're just pointers. And so are we. That's our job. That's what we do. And we best point the way to others when we are humble like Mary and Elizabeth, when we realize it's really not mainly about us. And so, who are you mainly celebrating this Christmas season? Is this season mostly about you and your family and your traditions, or is it mostly about him? Are you pointing the way to him, to anyone this season? Through an invitation, maybe to the play tonight, or to our Christmas Eve service, or somewhere where we'll share the good news of Christ, or, or a conversation that could happen in your home? Could God want you to be a signpost pointing to Christ this season for someone? I think, I think yes. And so Mary now breaks out into kind of a song poem thing. It's like spoken word is what we have happening in the next little bit. It's rooted in Mary's remarkable knowledge, this young girl uh, of the Old Testament. There are at least 12 allusions to the Old Testament in her song prayer that, that follows. This middle schooler knows her Bible, right? Mary's song begins with personal joy in verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. She is rejoicing because of God's exalted, exalting her amidst her humble estate by, by letting her participate in all of this. It refers to her social standing, for sure, but also to her spiritual standing. She acknowledges that she too needs a savior. God is doing something very personal for Mary. 
On the one hand, he's using her extraordinarily. She would bring the Savior into the world. But she will also be saved by her own child's work on her behalf as her Savior. God, her Savior, has come to redeem her from her sin. And just as an aside, both Mary and Elizabeth's yes to God here was a source of their greatest joy, their sons. But it would also yield their greatest sorrows. Elizabeth's son would be beheaded. Mary's son would be crucified. And if anyone tells you that following Jesus involves no suffering, no sorrow, they are either deceived or a deceiver. But Mary's joy swallows up her sorrows, her future sorrows here. Her joy extends beyond the mercy that's shown to her. Her joy extends beyond mercy shown to her. And now she sings of a mercy spreads for generations. And this is where we fit in explicitly. It says in verse 50, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. We are in that line of generations where God's mercy comes to us through Mary's son. It's a mercy that triumphs over judgment. It's grace that's greater than our sin. Mary's son, Jesus, offers that mercy to all who fear him, who worship him as the very son of God. For those who fear him, mercy will surely come. But to those who disregard him, who have an inflated sense of self-importance and self-sufficiency, they face something else. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm, God has. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Repeatedly, Mary states, God will help the humble. And just as decisively, she repeatedly declares, he will take down those who are proud in their hearts. And so this is a a good time to just pause and self-assess. Which marks you most? Humility and submission like Mary? I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Or are you more likely to say to God, may you do for me as I have demanded of you? Do you have a sense of humility to be chosen, even just to be chosen by God? Or is he pretty lucky to have somebody like you on the team? God is inviting us to wait humbly before him, like Mary, acknowledging our great need for him. Because like Mary, we too need a savior. We need someone to satisfy us and show us mercy and lift us up. Christmas is maybe the best time to receive God's mercy for your sins, to place your faith in this Savior, King Jesus, to trust him as the one who would bear your sin and to bear your penalty on the cross so you don't have to bear it yourself. Tim Keller once wrote about this. He said, there's never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do so. Christmas means that we are so lost, 
so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. That means you're not somebody who can pull yourself together and live a moral and good life on your own. Are you willing to admit that? Are you willing this morning to admit like Mary, you need a Savior? You can do that today even before you head home from this place to simply bow before God and say, God, I need, I need a Savior. I trust and hope in Jesus to be that Savior. As Jesus' followers, we acknowledge that we are not worthy of the grace that we have received. Like Mary, we're servants, slaves even, and we submit willingly to whatever he has for us. For in verse 54, it says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with, with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. God is keeping promises here that were made centuries, millennia before to Abraham. And Mary trusts those. She trusts that God keeps his word that he remembers mercy. The coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of an ancient promise. There's another promise that's coming into play, one that Jesus himself would later make. He says in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. So this morning we wait in humble, obedient faith for his return to make all things right and new. This is the Advent that we look for and long for during the Advent season. We look back at his first coming his first advent with joy. We look forward to his second coming, his second advent with hope. And while we wait, we wait in humble obedience like Mary. And Jesus gave us a way to keep both of his comings at the forefront of our minds as his people. It's called the Lord's Supper or communion. With the bread and the cup, we remember at his first coming, his body broken for us in love and his blood shed for our sins in forgiveness.